Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome back to part two of Stage's conversation with opera, concert, recording and stage favourite, David Hobson. In part one, David described his artistic life growing up in Ballarat, his significant and serendipitous crusade composing a score for a musical adaptation of Macbeth, his anticipation for the approaching AFL Grand Final, delighted to report a happy ending there, and the fortuitous path that led him to become one of the country's most engaging and popular performers. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Hobson. There were bells on a hill, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all till there was you. There were birds in the sky, but I never saw them winging. No, I never saw them at all till there was you. And there was music and wonderful roses. They tell me in sweet fragrant meadows of dawn and you there was love all around but I never heard it singing no I never I didn't intend on being a, a performer front and, st- front and square, let alone an opera singer. That just kind of happened. It sounds like you uh, you entered Pirates of Penzance quite reluctantly then. Well, I wouldn't say reluctantly. It was Ken, Ken basically, he, he said they needed a, a cover for Frederick, the Pirates of Penzance. Now, I had no, re- you know, I'd, I'd never been to a drama school or music school. Everything I did was basically self-taught, even in Ballarat. I did everything on my own kind of volition, which is kind of weird when I think about it when there's so many great opportunities there. But no, I didn't really find that that mentor back then to, or teacher back then that inspired me to sit down and nut it out because I was either playing footy or just everything. I just, I was voracious. I had a voracious appetite for everything. When Ken asked me to, you know, we'd really like you to come and do this. We'd be, we think it'd be great for you composing if you came and learned about the theatre by being an understudy. and being in the Fair ensemble enough. as well, so being a pirate and a, a policeman. And to me, GNS just sounded totally daggy. I had no interest whatsoever. I thought, no, GNS does not sound cool to me. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I think it's going to be really good for you. And here it is, you've got John English and all these other people. And Simon Gallagher was Frederick, so that's who I was going to be covering. So he convinced me and it was, I thought it was really just going to be a diversion for me to go and do this thing and learn about the theatre as opposed to really becoming a performer. But Simon never really went off. I mean, he's got chords of steel, Simon. Fantastic singer, beautiful singer, you know. He did a fantastic Frederick. But he was crook one weekend. I think it might have been the final season in Brisbane. And so I went on. And Ken came up and saw me do it. And he said, yep, we want you to do more. So that's, that's kind of how I ended up being a singer, I guess. And just a byline to that, I, I must admit that 
I probably learned, it was such a great way to learn in a way because everything about that production was, well, obviously it was a very steep learning curve for me because I remember Lindy Hume who came on to be the, again, I talked about Lindy before, she was the resident director for the last few seasons and I remember her going to Neil Ferrier and saying, I don't know what I've got here. You know, you've got this guy who never been on stage before, can't dance, you know, what, what am I going to do with him? I said, he's never danced before, never heard of him. And Neil said, look, I th- I'm sure he'll move okay because I hear he's a terrific footballer. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, as I said, it was a great learning curve because you had everyone from Ray Godden who was in charge of the costumes and... Gilda. Gilda Godden. You know, G- Gilda was a kind of font of theatrical history and how to behave backstage and John English was just the most incredible leading man because you know he led by example with his energy his respect for every part of the the cast and the way he involved everyone in the cast and every part every facet of the production and his commitment to the show there was kind of a real sense of humility about the way he performed and yet the energy and how much he put out there was like wow that's what that's what you got to do yeah you know there's four quarters <laughs> Cat like tread was the like the premiership third quarter. If we have to do it again in extra time, you know, we got to do it two, three times because it's such a beautiful cast with June Bronhill and Marina. It was Marina Prize first show, and people liked Todd McCanny. I mean, Jonathan Welsh. I mean, there was just an incredible amount of people in that show. A lot to learn. Well, it's not long before you're making your opera debut as Rodolfo in a Victorian country tour of. <laughs> La Boheme. And coincidentally, that was the very first opera I saw. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, where, at Her Majesty's Ballarat. Her Majesty's uh-huh. Ballarat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like playing to a, a home crowd on your, the, your opera debut? Mm. I would have been in such learning mode back then that I had not, I really have very little memory of the actual performances to a degree. I don't know if that makes sense or not because I was just trying to eat up all the information about what it took, what it was, how to do it. But I remember I'm pretty sure it was cold, (laughs) if I can remember. And it was, well, we had a great cast. We Well, Roger Lemke, myself, Christine Douglas and Cheryl Barker all ended up doing it elsewhere for Australian opera. So we're all very young and raw, but the the other three were definitely, Roger, Christine and Cheryl were more kind of opera orientated than myself. So they they kind of understood the art form more than me at that stage. So I was really in a, in a, yeah, I was was a fledgling back then. And I remember we had Brian Stacey conducted us and Hugh Halliday directed us. I mean, it was a really good, solid, way in an introduction for me into opera yeah yeah i do remember one particular moment so i mean i threw myself heart and soul into it there's no doubt about that but i i I didn't quite think and i've never really considered myself like an opera singer in a way i mean i just always just sang with my own voice and thought oh i'll be discovered any minute now and no one will really want to hear this and even the way I acted. And I remembered one night I came off stage and I said to Stace, Brian Stacey, for those of you who don't know, probably most of the people would know listening who Brian Stacey is. He ended up being a great musical theatre director as well. But I said to Stace one night, I said, Stace, geez, you know, I, you know, when Mimi died tonight, I, I just don't think I felt it and I don't think I gave the right, the right performance. I think I cheated the audience. And he slapped me over the face. He said, God, you're so up yourself, Hobson. It's not your it's not your job to have the heart attack. It's your job to give the audience the heart attack. So just rethink what you're doing. He was great, Stace. Like that. He was terrific. You know, think stop thinking about yourself so much in moments like that. It's a craft, you've got to learn how to do it. Don't indulge. Scordino di Visconti, non le falò. 
promettente lusinghier. Lo devo dire, non mi sembri sincer. So, you know, a debut like that in, in La Boheme, does that serve mm. as an audition of sorts for the iconic Australian opera production that, directed by Baz Luhrmann? Are you on well, people's guess, radar? Um, I mean, that, that must be the... See, I really... I never really auditioned. That's the thing. And I, I... I guess that would have been like an audition in a way, but I had no... I was really living in the moment. I didn't think about performing beyond the next performance or production or I was living in the moment. So I was living in writing what I was ever writing at that point in time. I was never really thinking ahead. So I guess I was doing mindfulness before it was mindfulness because I'd never had that vaulting ambition to go, you know, I must sing Otello by the time I'm 40 or I must, you know, I want to be singing at the Sydney Opera House before I'm 30 or make sure I'm, you know, I had none of, None of that interests me whatsoever or was on my radar. It was just about what I was doing and I was trying to learn what I was doing and try to do it the best I could and try to find the best people to learn from. So doing something like La Boheme, I had no concept of what would happen or where it would lead. One night, and I cannot remember where we, where we were, but the agent, Jennifer Eddy, came backstage after one of the performances and said, I'd like to represent you. Well, I didn't even know who she was or what it, what representation meant because I, you know, Ken Mackenzie Forbes had taken me to the Victoria State Opera to do the Pirates and then he said, we want to pay you to be a young artist here as well, whatever that meant. And then the Arts Centre was saying, we want you to be a composer as well. So it was all, I was really a child, I guess, and I didn't really know what an agent was. And I said to Jenny, well, I don't know. Okay. So I, I guess I was very, very fortunate in that respect because I was totally naive, totally naive. That uh, Lerman production of uh, La Boheme was, was certainly a, mm. a watershed production for, for opera. It changed the whole aesthetic of, of what opera could be. It was, <laughs> if you like, uh, Hollywood meets the classics there because you're yeah. all young, you're all beautiful, you were all looked your part, mm. as well I as the, I... vo the vocal chops to do it. <clears throat> well, did I? I don't know. Yeah. Because, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, look, I'd done, I mean, I nearly didn't do it because I'd done, after that Lubber when the Australian Opera wanted me to go and do stuff at the Australian Opera. So all of a sudden I'm with the Australian Opera as well without really, you know, auditioning. And after a couple of seasons, with the Australian Opera, I went to Moffat Oxenbold, who was the then artistic director, and I said, look, I think I'd done, I'd done Mozart, I'd done Rossini. I mean, so that's the ridiculous thing, Pete, for me. I, I sang the whole of Cosi Fan Tutte before I'd even learned a Mozart aria. That's the kind of world I was in. It was really fast-tracked. I remember going to Moffat, the year 89, and saying, because I'd been, Jim Sharma was interested in me doing chess. They were doing a production of chess. Yeah, at the Royal Theatre Royal. Is that where it was? I yep. remember. It was late 80s. And I went to Moffat and said, look, I think I'm going to go and do, you know, they're interested in me doing chess. I think that's probably more me. I don't think opera and me work together. I'm not sure that it's, that it's my world. 
I loved it, don't get me wrong. I did love it, but I just wasn't sure whether I fit it in. And he said, well, look, I want you to go and have a, a meeting with Baz Luhrmann, the young director. And I'm, I'd met Baz before because he'd done a, a workshop for the Australian opera called Lake Lost, him and Catherine Martin and Bill Marin, and, which I wasn't in, but I, you know, I'd met him and we'd had a chat and we'd gone on well. I said, sure, yeah, I'll go and have a chat with Baz. But I probably won't, you know, do it. But anyway, Baz and I had a great chat and we just got on so well and we had the same ideals and, yeah, we were, we were basically cut from the same cloth back then. Do you know what I mean? We, yep. I really liked what he was about. So I did end up doing staying with the opera for a while, so I nearly didn't do it. But was it that different? I Look, in many respects it was. I think that Moffat took a you know, really big gamble there. I think we only had fifty or $60,000 to do, to do the production. And it was known as the baby Boam because we were all young so, yeah. bambini. And I remember Baz used to put curtains over the, at the we're at the Opera Centre in Surrey Hills, used to put curtains over the windows so no one could look in to our rehearsals. <laughs> so that we we're only, we're, you know, we we're in our own little playground. And look, it, was it really that different to say what, Maria Callas and Tito Gobbi were doing back in 1964 with Tosca, just dressed up a little bit differently. I don't know. Maybe the whole thing was as well. But Baz brought a sense of ownership for the performers, I think, to a degree, and to try and discover by rediscovering. Because you can't really, I mean, you can't get Boheme wrong, let's face it. No, it's no. kind of impenetrable. It's, it's a perfect piece of writing. It's economical. It's like a fantastic Netflix miniseries in four parts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And because the story is pretty basic, but the music just elevates it to a great piece of communication of of humanity because everyone can relate to it. Yeah. Um, and I think what Baz did also is the fact that I don't think that many productions had had the sense where you translate it into English, you read it as a text like you do a play. So we would read it as a play in English, which is probably commonplace now. But back in the late 80s, early 90s, I doubt whether that was that commonplace in opera. And, you know, you would try and find your objectives and your wares and your whys and your wherefores. But reading it as a play in English, probably not done, not done that much. Then you would read it in English with the score being played. Then you would do the same thing in Italian, so, you know, you kind of build up the pieces and get a, it's like you could get your body and your mind and your soul involved in a, a more kind of uh, what, systematic way, like a, I guess like a play would operate. So perhaps that was, they were the building blocks to how it worked. And so then by doing that, of course, also you built up a different relationship with your, with your fellow performers because you're not just going in there on the first day and singing. You know, you have... Usually notes. what happens in opera, sorry? No. You're not just singing notes. You've got a backstory. You've got a relationship. You've got a backstory. I mean, sure, look, I'm sure most performers and opera singers do do that and it's nothing new, but we just did it in a very systematic way and we had time as opposed to coming and doing your Rodolfo or your Mimi. We try to do it as a team and I really enjoyed that aspect. In fact, that's the one thing I love. You know, it's what I love about football as well. It's probably why I still want to be in a rock and roll band. I love being in a team. And Baz really, in, even though he was like the captain, it was a team. It was a team as a team performance, and no idea was because a lot of the ideas came from me. How we, how Rodolfo would be like, for instance, at the end of the show, um, Rodolfo is on a ladder, and Mimi has just died. And most people, you know, we, I said I don't know what I'm going to do yet. So most people rush to Mimi. Well, I didn't feel that as my Rodolfo. I kind of, just, I was so kind of catatonic on the ladder, I couldn't move. So yeah. Baz allowed that, you know, I had that kind of freedom as, a, as an actor to make those choices. So I didn't rush to her and scream me, me by holding her in my arms. I kind of had this different youthful, selfish, um, you know, R Rodolfo's parents, had they died? 
did he have a brother and sister? Were they, you know, so all of these kind of questions I tried to answer. Have I had I faced death before? You know, we're not in Paris in the 1830s, we're in Paris in the 1950s. It's, you know, it was totally different. So I like that aspect of it. So was it, I, maybe opera wasn't really done like that before. And of course, when Catherine put her fantastic colour on it, she gave focus to the, to the action. So it wasn't just sprayed around the stage. So every character had a different colour, um, which brought yes, different kind of attention to how the drama worked. It was, look, it was, it was, it was good. It was, it was very good. So I guess it was different. And it, it had, as you said, probably a filmic aspect to it, but in many sense, Love OM is like a chamber piece. It's not a big, it's not a huge opera. It's yeah. only act two where the colour and movement begins. Otherwise, it's just like a little chamber piece with a few characters. So was it not long after that when you make your international debut with San Francisco Opera in mm-hmm. Les Liaisons d'Aujourd'hui? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dangerous Liaisons with... Um, I don't know. Do you want to say that? <laughs> Les Liaisons yeah. d'Aujourd'hui? Yeah. Yeah, that was good. And again, you know, unexpected and thrown into a very heady cast of characters. Renee Fleming, who, of course, most, you know, Glorious soprano, Frederica von Stader, who I absolutely adored. She was mezzo soprano, the, one of the loveliest mezzo, and just when well, they're both lovely, both Renee and Flicker, as she's known, lovely people as well. Thomas Hampson, the great American baritone. So it was, yeah, it was, it was good. It was, it was great. Good production, you know, interesting score. So I mean, it must have been San Francisco became very good at creating new. New opera. In fact, America has a good, good track record of creating new works. I mean, we we do we do do it here in Australia, and I've been part of many kind of um, new operas. New works. Uh, the eighth, the eighth wonder, and and Lindy. 
Whit Sunday. Whit Sunday. Well, I, I think it's important to do that. Whether whether they succeed or not, it's it's funny. I mean, I I always have a an interesting relationship with new works because you think, well, are we using an archaic art form to tell stories of today by by using the the old art form? Which is why when you talk about something like Superstar, telling a story, albeit a very ancient story, but with a a modern, vibrant, albeit now, how old is it? Fifty years old, for God's sake. Yeah, absolutely. But the idea of music theatre telling you stories is is the operatic way, the the right way to tell them. I don't know. It's, I always find that curious. Sometimes we use the forces of um, classical orchestra, proscenium arch. Not well, some modern operas get mic'd anyway because the forces become different when you synthesise electronics. It's just really interesting, you know, because sometimes when audiences say used to more musical theatre and then they go and hear an opera, sometimes telling stories of today, they find it almost anathema. It was like, well, you're using an art form which is old, but in actual fact, it's still, it is still valid. I mean, I'm, I'm being devil's advocate here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is someone who, because I still like performing and writing new works, but it's interesting how audiences, we, it's fi- hard to find new audiences for new opera. John Adams almost had a hit, or did have a hit, things like Nixon in China, and which was using more that slightly minimalist but neoclassical in a way fused together. And Philip Glass. There was a Philip Glass, of course. I mean, Einstein on the beach. Was that an opera? Hmm. It's a new interpretation of opera. Yeah, it's great. We just got to keep pushing boundaries, which I think is is fantastic. and Eurydice, yeah, 1774 Paris version, which which you did. How difficult is it to sing when you're, you're hanging by a rope? Well, it's difficulty is magnified and exacerbated when the actual small platform for your foot disappears one night and you actually are hanging for 15 minutes, literally <laughs> hanging, hanging onto a rope. I was tethered by a brace around a harness around my stomach, but I still had to carry my body weight because you did have a little, I had a little foot, foot shelf there, most nice, but one night foot shelf wasn't there, so I had to sing all these incredibly difficult arias. Yeah, it was good though. You kind of get the energy somewhere. I, that, that's one of the most favourite things I've ever done. It was a fantastic, oh, gotcha, fantastic fusion of theatre and dance because we had Meryl Tankard's ADT, part of that. That production, 
the music is, I mean, the thing about Gluck and that period of music is there's a directness about it, which I probably related to because uh, it had more kind of resonance with, with pop music to a, de- to a degree, to rock music in a way. There was a real drive to it as opposed to the romantic period in the late 18th, early 19th century to a degree. Um, yes, no, that was probably my, one of my most favourite productions. I loved doing that. I loved, I loved the director I worked with, Stefan, Stefanos Lazaridis, who was, have you heard of Stefanos? No, I haven't. You know, well, he was, he was more a designer and a great designer, um, European and English designer. He was Greek in origin and he hadn't really done a lot of direct direction before. And in a way it was more his design that informed the production more than he directed because it's ostensibly a three-hander with chorus and dances. So it was all, all about shapes. And he did these fantastic designs which almost choreographed the whole show. How he, how he wrote it out, and the, the fantastic colours, the spinning wall. I don't know. If you, did you ever see it? I don't know where these. I didn't. No, I didn't see it. No. It, well, there's a thing called the Dance of the Furies when Orpheus goes into the underworld, and he has to end up um, basically soothing the savage beast to get to the underworld to rescue his Eurydice. And at one stage, there's this huge wall. The wall covers the whole stage, and it spins. And I'm at the front of the wall and the dancers are dancing around it and on it and it almost created this cyclone in the theatre where it kept whirring around. Really exciting. Uh, but a fantastic production and I love the way he he kind of saw it as a ritualistic retelling of the story of Orpheus, a la Christ re-crucified it. Are you aware of that, that book? Um, yeah, but I, I, I love doing that. And it was a huge vocal challenge and probably suited my voice, say, more than something like the dramatic works because my voice is more lyric. And it, as you said, it was, it was the Paris version because it was originally written for a castrato and then Gluck rewrote it for what's known as an or contra, which is a high tenor. And it was incre- written very high, very high set, so the tessitura is very high, pretty demanding. You know, lots of top Ds and sits above the top C. So it sits pretty high, but it's the music is just so beautiful and direct and absolutely loved it. Probably my favourite production. And Amanda Thane was really beautiful and Miriam Gormley is a more great production. <laughs> Did you study languages at school? We had a little bit of schoolboy German, French and Latin. Because that's a a big part of your career, singing in different languages. Did did you find that easy? Yeah. No, not necessarily, but I didn't find it difficult either. I wouldn't say difficult or easy. Just required work. It requires work, exactly. So I, I hadn't done any language outside of school, so I didn't do language at university or anything like that. And it was only when I got into opera that I started studying it. So the Victoria State Opera, we had a language class. Did we do just Italian? I can't remember really whether we did both. But we would have language studies. And then when I was getting very serious about doing opera at the Australian Opera, when they wanted me to do all these big roles, um, having never because I never did singing competitions and I never studied at the con or had any of those, that type of training. The only real training I got was when Richard Bonney and Joan Sutherland gave me a scholarship of monies of sort. They gave me an award and I used it to go overseas and study language more than the voice in a way. So I went to, to Florence and studied his language for three or four months and 
I did the same thing with with French a couple of years later before All Fay, because I felt as though, for me anyway, language was to really get inside the roles and inside the language was was really important because I think singing, you know, the technical aspect of singing, you're always going to do and you're always going to be with a teacher. But if you really understand what you're singing about and you can convey that to the audience, I think that's that's half the battle. You've got to make you've got to make a very pretty sound as well. But but if you know what you're singing that, about, yeah, sometimes that can inform the sound you're making. Hmm. So if you're more concerned with making text work, then the sound can follow, if that makes sense. So the breath's already following the, the breath going and the, the thoughts going, then the body follows suit and supports it, hopefully. And I think that's that's vitally important. So, yes, you- language. And I like, you know, I love singing in different languages as well. But particularly, the only thing, the only language I haven't sung a lot, lot of was German. I didn't do a lot of German opera. And even when we did things like, in fact, Magic Flute, did we do it? No, we didn't do it. We did that in English. Uh, because I don't, didn't have a background of singing classical music per se, what I've really enjoyed later in my career is doing leader and art song and doing Schubert and Schumann. And I had the great opportunity to do a lot of French work as well with Denise Shepard. I don't know if you've heard of Denise Shepard. She was a French coach here in, in Melbourne. And we did a lot of work together. We did a lovely recording together, well, of French art song. great working with her because she was well a she was french but b she had a direct um, link with composers like francis poulon and renaldo arne who she actually learned with when she was in paris learning as a student and a little bit later so it was lovely to get that kind of direct connection at six degrees of separation with some of the original composers yes so that was great and i i really loved singing in french and i also did a lot of that stuff with a guy called David McSkinney, who is a, an accompanist who unfortunately died of MND a few years ago. He was a lovely man. And he was head of music here at Victorian Opera, worked a lot of Australian Opera and South Australian Opera. But the most graceful and talented and lovely man, and he's sorely missed by a lot of, a lot of singers and not to mention his family. But I had a great connection with him because he had a great connection with the French music as well. Do you read reviews of, of your work or avoid them? Of my work? Yeah. Uh, you know, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, you get hurt, you pick yourself up. And I'm sure you've asked many of your guests questions like that. It's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time when you you know when you get judged and i think that if you are incredibly confident of what you've done sometimes it's done it doesn't matter but if you're incredibly kind of fragile yeah sometimes it can take the wind out of your sail but yeah look i 
No, do I read everything? No. Have I read stuff? Yes. Have I been hurt? Yes. Have, when they've been good, have I believed it? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's... I think that... And the, the only get on probably the less you're likely to look at it, I think. You kind of you head in a different headspace. But because um, it's an interesting thing, I think we all, we review our own work and we review other people's work as well. And the, the subjectivity that is attached to that can't be, can't be hidden, I don't think, if you're, if you're being honest. But I think there's also a responsibility perhaps to, to have a modicum of humanity when you're doing it sometimes. Yeah. I don't know, Peter. I might say something different on a different day. I might say something on different on a different day. Of course, of course. But, you know, when you are in the stands, when you are in the stands, say, for instance, if you're at a football game and you are assessing your team's performance and you'll think, geez, why didn't he go in harder? So that's a, that's a type of review that I'm giving a personal review. Whereas that guy is doing something I've never done, can't do now, and I'm judging him for not going for a hardball get. Or you could have run harder. You could have. I'm thinking, yeah, but he does other things wrong. But yeah. at the end of the day, what does you? it mean? How do, you, how do you feel about it? Oh, they're a sort of a, a necessary evil, I suppose. They're, they're one way of pulling a crowd in, putting bums on seats. Um, you've got to look at them realistically. I think we know in our own circle whose advice we like to to take note yeah. of, and, and we, we go to yeah, those people rather than a reviewer. Well, I guess it's a conduit for us as well. So if you're about to look at a Netflix series, yeah. will you, for instance, look up what people have said about it? Will you look at those kind of reviews or...? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, there are uh, certain reviewers whose uh, opinion I respect. So, I mean, there's so much quality material on streaming services now you don't want to waste any time you just want to go for what's good so yeah and what, I do but, take note. but sometimes you kind of go but what is good is sometimes subjective as well for instance i my wife and i just started watching schmigadoon have you seen that oh yes yes <laughs> start to watch the first two episodes hilarious good fun, good fun. Um, and if you're a, a musical theatre aficionado, spotting all of the Easter eggs within it and the references to other... Yes. I mean, just the opening fun. credits, that, that overture is fantastic. Oklahoma. and I mean, it's, well, it's got everything. It's, the Music Man. It's hilarious. Music Man, it's all there. Brigadoon. When, a lot of Brigadoon. A lot of Brigadoon. No, it's a lot of fun. I guess your opera calendar has prevented you from doing a lot of musical theatre. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Can we expect to see more? Look, I, it's funny, music, well, as, you, as I alluded to before, I was meant to have done chess, then I went totally opera, but I'm probably in some respects, I, I, yeah, I kind of miss the music theatre thing by doing opera, but I do love doing music theatre as well. I did a, I've never done a song, oh, no, I have done song dance. So we did a fantastic production of Follies down here, which was um, was mainly a concert version. So I never thought I'd get to do you played Buddy uh, Follies, didn't you? but I really enjoyed. It. I did. I did Buddy. Yeah, yeah. And it was a, it was a great cast. So I got to work with people like um, well, I'd done stuff with Lisa McCune before, but Philip Quast, who I hadn't really worked, we got on like a house on fire. So Quast and I, I feel like we. We felt as though we, re we really connected. He was fantastic. Um, and Wood and, I mean, a whole, well, it had Nancy Hayes. It had Deb Byrne. It was a, it was a fantastic cast. Bert so and that, Patty? Yeah, that kind of, Bert and Patty were in it. Bert was hilarious, hilarious. Um, and, yeah, Chitty Chitty, which I, Chitty Chitty came out of the blue. That was a, that was a lot of fun. And I knew, for instance, I knew Rachel Beck beforehand because we did, what did we do? Oh, we did te the television thing, It Takes Two and, a, and concerts and what have you. But we, we just got on extremely well as well. She's, we did concerts after that and um, a recording. But 
musical theatre is a, it's great. I, I mean, I love doing it. Yeah. Very happy to do more if there are things, if the right things are there. But any, anything, Pete, I'm, look, I'm up for anything. What's your favourite part of the theatre? You like spending time in the dressing room, the wings, stage door, auditorium, flies? Wow. Favourite part of the theatre. That's a good question. Yeah, I like good questions. For me, it's the wings, I think, especially just as the overture is starting. I remember, yeah, I think the wings is a really, it can be a, a corridor of fear and a corridor of elation and just wonderment, you know, before you have to go on that feeling in the wings, you know, the nerves that are just pulsating through your body. Can I do this? Should I do this? Expectation. And do I peer around and have a look at the audience? You know, the orchestra striking up. But being in the wings is wonderful. I remember, as I said before, I'd never really done a Mozart, sang a Mozart aria, but doing Cosi Fantutte. And I recall there's a quartet in the first act where the two boys who were the lovers are leaving their, their, their girlfriends. And we sang the most glorious quartet. Well, it's a quintet, really, because Don Alfonso sings as well. And I was thinking to myself, how can this get any, you know, you kind of think, how can this music get any better? It's just so beautiful. I was just reveling in it. And then you stand off stage, you know, I walk off stage and just listen to the extraordinary wonderment and beauty of the, you know, the Osoave trio from Cosi, the, they sing after that. You think, yeah. well, it actually cannot get any better. Yeah. That beautiful, beautiful trio from Cosi. So being in the wings and moments like that yeah, are extraordinary. So perhaps the wings... But you cannot be the, the the sound of, it's like you're on a cloud of music when the orchestra is just, you're suspended above the orchestra and you're on stage and you're about to sing sometimes. It's like, it's like you're surrounded by this fluffy cloud of, well, yeah, just this huge fluffy cloud of wonderment. Yeah, being on stage, it's a wonderful thing. And if you're sharing it with someone else, it's even, it's even greater. And, I mean, I've been lucky to share the stage with the most wonderful performance, yep. Well, it's been wonderful uh, sharing this conversation with you, David Hobson. Thanks for uh, metaphorically you, kicking, kicking the footy with me. That's, uh, I've appreciated it. So who, who is your side? Sydney Swans. It was always Carlton growing up, but since, uh, look, I've been in Sydney now for nearly 30 years, so it seems like sense to, to back for the home side. It's a good club, the Bloods. They have a they have a good culture, and I remember in the early eighties actually there was a they were they were struggling early to mid eighties. When Edelstein and Mike Willisey yep. had owned the, owned the team and uh, <laughs> personalities like Warwick Kappa. Warwick Kappa, yep, there it is. Those shorts. <laughs> well, good luck for good luck for Sunday. Let's hope the. Um, the Dons have a win. The Don, the, the Ds. The Ds. The Ds. We don't yep. say the Dons, the Ds. You said the Dons, but that's why, okay. Why the, no, the Dons are Essendon, my goodness. That was a faux yep. pas. Um, yep. Why the Ds? Where do they get the Ds from? The Demons. So we oh. originally known, we were originally known in before the 30s as the Fuchsias. Oh, that's and nice. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> so they were known as the, as the Fuchsias and... When a character called Checker Hughes came to coach us in the 30s, he decided that, geez, I'm not really, I don't reckon that tag is going to put the fear of God into any opposition. So I want you to go out there and play like demons. So that's where the name came from. So Checker Hughes kind of coined that phrase back in the 30s. I mean, Hawthorne used to be the Mayblooms, Pete. The Mayblooms? There was the Fuchsias and the Mayblooms. Oh, the Mayblooms. Right. Hmm. Gee. And uh, but yeah, the, I think the demons is all good. Do you, actually, do you remember Jeff Tumbridge? Oh yeah, yeah. I directed Jeff in a, a production of Travelling North at National Theatre. Get out of here! Did you really? Yeah, yeah. yeah so Tanner was bloke. a 
he was fantastic. Well, Tana used to, I mean, that, that was another one of my great connections with Melbourne is that Tana would take me to the footy, him and David and Nick, his two sons, and he would actually take us in the late 60s, early 70s down to see Melbourne play every now and then. So we would go into the rooms because he, Jeff Tunbridge was a great Melbourne VFL player. He played in three premierships for Melbourne and he was my senior teacher and coach at Ballarat Grammar. And I remember one, uh, it would have been eight or nine, we went into the rooms and I think we only had a piece of blotting paper, but I got all the signatures of all the players. It was my most treasured possession for, for you know, that day. It was going to be my most treasured possession probably for life. I remember coming home and having a bath and I just couldn't be, bear to be parted with it. And it was by the side of the bath. And I think I turned to get the soap or something, as you do. <laughs> and I watched, I watched the signatures and the paper fall into the bath and the ink just kind of evaporated into the Oh, water. no. No. That's why Melbourne was cursed. <laughs> That's why we haven't won. <laughs> It'll change this week. Thanks, yeah. David. All right, Pete. A great joy to record that conversation with David. As you can tell, he has immense charm, terrific humour and a great passion for the process of performance and collaboration in making great theatre. How fabulous too that he was able to relish a Melbourne win in the AFL Grand Final. I'm sure he is still walking on sunshine. Thanks to the team at Mark Gogol Management for coordinating today's episode. And do seek out David's many recordings, available at all good music stores, online and off. That iconic production of Laba Wim was also filmed, and I'm sure you can find that somewhere too, with some investigation. Thanks to my guest today, David Hobson. Go the D's. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website www.stagespodcast.com.au I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.